Flying, 1991-2002, Learning Around the World. In my 20s and early 30s, I traveled around the world, meeting angels both visible and invisible. It was a thorough preparation for my later calling, although at the time I thought I was just making a living and having adventures. I told a friend I operated on PNV, my invented acronym for Pure Narrative Value. If what happened to me made an interesting tale, it had worth. The definition of interesting evolved slowly along the spectrum from crazy adventure to synchronicity to divine providence to spiritual insight to grace. 1991-1992, Prijevica, Slovakia, Education for Democracy. I had a degree in English and a divine commandment to teach. The Berlin Wall had just fallen and communism was on its way out. I wanted to travel, and I had loved Eastern Europe, so I applied to teach English through a program called Education for Democracy. I struck gold, or coal, as the case was, by getting assigned to Prijevica, a mining city of 60,000 people in the then Czechoslovakia. That year saw the road signs change from Lenin Street and Marx Boulevard to Avenue Juraj Janosik, named after the National Robin Hood. My local supermarket had a dozen white-jacketed workers employed by the state, but by the end of the year, a little shop down the road was importing Italian pasta. Competition. The people who befriended me created a mini-society around the three, sometimes four, English teachers who moved to this city. Our students were adults who had endured economic and political hardships, but had preserved the Slovaks' strong connection to nature, so we hiked through the mountains together made dinner over an open fire, and sang songs. I have an illusory memory of the place changing from when I arrived to when I left. I first perceived it as gray and dreary. By the time I exited, Slovakia was multicolored and vibrant. This is a myth. As the people told me themselves, the introduction of democracy and capitalism didn't solve their problems. It just gave them different choices. We had long discussions, and I shifted my perspective from the absolute correctness of the West to a more subtle understanding of various points of view. To describe the Slovaks as warm and loyal is to understate the reality. The lesson I learned from this year abroad was to trust total strangers deeply. The world is a safe and generous place. It wasn't the city that shifted from black and white into color, but my own perception. 1993 to 1997, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Hmong culture. Having followed the divine imperative to teach, I returned to the United States and pursued a degree in teaching English as a foreign language. I lived at friends' houses in Minneapolis and attended classes at a small local institution, Hamlin University. Along the way, I fell in love with an American guy and we married in 1995. We divorced in 1998 without having children. The most impactful learning outside of the relationship sphere happened at a special elementary school in Minneapolis, Sheridan Global Arts and Communications School. I did my student teaching here and worked with a fabulous mentor, Mary Jo Thompson. She designed curriculum integrating the arts into every area of studies for the students aged 5 to 14. Mary Jo asked me to help write a federal grant proposal to meet the needs of 25% of the school's population who came from the Hmong community. The Hmong come from the highlands of Laos, and are a minority population with thousands of years of textile and jewelry art, oral storytelling tradition, and shamanic medicine. A fascinating culture in itself, 
The Hmong faced political tragedy because of the Vietnam War. The Hmong assisted the U.S. soldiers, particularly as jungle guides. But in 1975, when the Americans pulled out at Saigon, the Hmong were left behind to be hunted down in vengeance by the Viet Cong. In a story that has been repeated too many times in human history, the Hmong fled across the Mekong River, thousands dying in their attempt to escape. The U.S. took a long time to recognize the Hmong as allies, and so those people who managed to get out of Laos languished in refugee camps in Thailand before being allowed to emigrate to America. When they came, they were placed in Minnesota, in large part thanks to the generosity of the Lutherans. Not to slight Minnesota at all, but a semi-nomadic people from the Southeast Asian mountains is not a natural fit for the European-settled snowfields of the Great White North, so learning on both sides needed to take place. With my mentor, we designed a series of activities for artists in residence from the larger Hmong community. The problem was there were very few artists who recognized themselves as teachers. So I had to contact individual painters, musicians, poets, chefs, and a newly formed drama troupe and convince them of their mission. They were easily convinced. Fortunately, they all agreed to come to the school, and we had money from the government to pay them. And for two years, regular events took place that introduced Hmong culture to the students and teachers. Our activities set some precedents and gave these artists confidence to perform more publicly. My favorite visitor was the shaman. He was a guest of a professor from Hamlin University who was giving our Sheridan teachers a class called Background Knowledge of Hmong Culture. Though European-American, she had learned the Hmong language and had lived with the people since the first refugees had come to the United States. A winter's evening under the fluorescent lights in the school library, ten teachers, mostly women in their thirties, sat in a semicircle and listened to the Hamlin University professor explain the Hmong shamanic tradition. Every person has nine souls attached to the body. If one of the nine goes astray, illness can befall the person. The shaman, like the doctor, seeks to heal the person, but not through physical means. He goes into a trance and calls the soul back into the person. For children, parents tie a string around their child's wrist. If necessary, they will rename the child to confuse the evil spirits and to prevent future illness. A thin old man entered, wearing a black cotton robe. His face was gaunt and wrinkled. He stooped as he walked, but he had a sense of pride as the professor showed him to his seat. He took out a black handkerchief with two ribbons attached and tied it over his face so we couldn't see him going into the trance. Then he took a musical instrument out of his bag. As I recall, it was like a tambourine with small bells. Still sitting, he shook the tambourine and found a rhythm, and then after a minute he sang. His voice rose up in a high-pitched melody, and he chanted and shook his tambourine. He began to rock back and forth, finding his path through the darkness. Then he shuddered. His voice paused, and when he sang again, it was in a deeper tone. Moving as if on strings, he stood up, and then he stood on his chair and rocked back and forth. This went on for ten minutes or so, and then he let out a loud shriek. All the energy drained from his figure, and he sat down in the chair, weak and panting. The professor gently took him by the arm and led him out of the room. I woke up. Maybe he had called one of my souls back into my body. I felt alive, and I wanted to keep feeling that way. 1995, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Student Teaching. The university where I obtained my teaching license had a program in Brazil. One day, a professor asked, who would like to do a practicum in Brazil, March through April? 
Even though I was engaged to be married in May, my hand shot up into the air. I wanted nothing more than to go abroad. It had been three years already. So those two months, much to the dismay of my fiancé and my parents, I spent in Rio de Janeiro at the American School, teaching English as a second language to the children of Brazil's elite, including famous football players. The most fascinating part was seeing empty bottles of beer, a rose, and a flickering candle on a street corner. I saw four or five of these and then asked my co-teacher, a very religious Brazilian woman. She knit her brows together. That's candomblé. I could tell by her brief answer she didn't want to get into the details. I asked another teacher, a chain smoker I often joined on the balcony overlooking the lush school grounds, gazing into the distance. A mango-colored sun hovered over the rainforest, which always seemed to be edging nearer and nearer the school buildings, threatening to overgrow the boundaries. Candomblé is a mix of Catholicism and African religions. That's why your co-teacher didn't want to discuss it, as she is apostolic. But I am Catholic, and I know my saints. The people, here she means ordinary folks, need help, so they ask at the crossroads and leave a gift. The drink, the flower, the candle. You'll see. I wanted more, but my stay was too brief and my Portuguese too limited, so I filed it under later. I arrived home tan and ecstatic just in time for the wedding, raising eyebrows and lowering hopes for that marriage's future. 1997 to 1998, La Paz, Bolivia. Goodbye, Minnesota. Two years later, my husband and I wanted to study Spanish and work as volunteers, so we found an organization based in La Paz, Bolivia. We sold all our clothes and books in Minneapolis and took off for a year. We found out that Bolivians do speak Spanish, but that's very much the colonial language. The original cultures are Quechua and Amara, and those are the first languages of the majority of the people. Their Spanish, therefore, is somewhat simplified, which made it much easier to learn, but less transferable to a place steeped in literature such as Spain. How closely the indigenous Bolivians resembled the Hmong! For two years I'd been studying the art and lifeways of a nation from Asia, and here were their brothers and sisters in the mountains of South America. Their faces looked related, their languages owned similar sounds, their stitchwork had the same colorful patterns, and their animist beliefs ran parallel. The world suddenly shrank. The theory of the ice bridge from Asia across Alaska and into the Americas was true. 1997 La Paz, Bolivia, the Street of the Witches. My favorite place in La Paz was La Calle de las Brujas, or the Street of the Witches, near the center of town. I first found out about it when we moved and a colleague came to bless the new apartment. I knew about housewarmings, but this blessing meant humbly asking the Earth Mother, Pachamama, to allow us to stay in this place. To do so, our friend sprinkled alcohol in the corners of each room, burned charcoal and incense, and lit a candle in the shape of a frog. When I asked her where she had found the items, she directed me toward the Street of the Witches. It's not hidden, and tourists swarm it, but personally I felt as if I were walking up and down the street alone. I first went on a cool day. The indigenous women, called cholitas, wore scarves in addition to their bowler hats, wool sweaters, and multiple skirts. The street is structured like a long, narrow alley. The saleswomen each run a table filled with goods. The tables are set up on the sidewalks, so you can stroll up and down and peruse the merchandise, most of which is the same from table to table. I tripped on a cobblestone, and a cholita giggled, covering her teeth with her hand. When I glanced at her, 
Her face turned immediately serious, like a schoolchild about to be scolded. But I gave her a warm look, saying, Oops, and she beckoned me to her table. She had stacked her table full, and the little boxes made a neat half-pyramid, stepped up and back, supported by the old stone wall of a house. Candles, boxes of charcoal, incense, and incense holders. I recognized these. Roots, dried leaves, and vials of small black spheres. Medicines? Then the magic stuff. Dried frogs. The Aymara used these for fertility, I heard later, but I didn't find out how. Worst of all, dehydrated llama fetuses hanging from a clothesline above the table. To lay the foundation of a new house or building, Pachamama is appeased with the burial of a dried llama fetus. Then she allows the construction to continue and reach a successful conclusion. Bolivia is in an earthquake zone, and a non-llamaed building could easily topple. The Cholita showed me her goods by drawing her hand across the table. Her friend came over, since sales were slow that day, and didn't make much small talk. Pointing at my salesperson, the friend said, in Spanish, she doesn't want to have any more children. Now there's blunt and there's blunt. I said, why are you telling me this? Because maybe you can help, she answered. You all know ways of preventing pregnancy, but this girl's husband won't allow birth control. He says the more babies, the better. But she already has four. Four kids? She looked 21 years old. I described the kinds of birth control methods I knew about and their relative costs. Both women listened intently, concentrating on the question of how to keep those methods secret from the husband. I bought a candle and left, wishing them success. Class and education were keeping people from information they wanted. 1997, La Paz, Bolivia, spinning into sanity. A world-class ceramicist and teacher, Mario Saravia, lives in a suburb of La Paz. I joined his pottery class for eight months and learned how to throw a pot on a wheel. We even had a student exhibition at a local gallery, and it made the society pages of the newspaper. I made lovely bowls in Mario's class, and I met a half-dozen fascinating expats. Most had lived in Bolivia for ages, so they gave me the scoop on everything from where to buy furniture to what was going down in the hardly better than dictatorial government. The president had been a dictator in the 1970s, but proclaimed himself reformed. When we did hand-building with clay, we all sat around an enormous rectangular table together and chatted the morning away about student riots and water shutoffs. Mario taught me inner peace. Once I came into the class emotionally distraught from a domestic argument. I was hardly containing my tears, and I marched straight to the pottery wheel so I wouldn't have to speak to my classmates already working at the big table. I switched on the spinning wheel and thumped the first lump of clay onto the disc, but it flew right off. I shook my head and tried again. The second one stuck to the wheel for a nanosecond and then rebelliously slid right over the edge. I put my hands on my hips. Was nothing going to go right today? Then I started to sniffle, and I bit my lips. Mario came over and put his hand on my shoulder. He had been watching me since I'd come in. It won't stay, I warbled. He spoke softly so the other students wouldn't tune in. The secret to centering the clay is to first be centered yourself. Then he walked away to help somebody else. I let the tears roll down my cheeks for a minute, more out of gratitude for Mario than for my previous distress. I heaved a big breath and shook my arms out. I forced myself to smile, and I looked out the window at a fruit tree in the garden. That took the focus outside of me, 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 and into the present. 
I picked up clay lump number three and held it near my chest, accidentally smearing a bit on my apron. It took me four more slow inhales and exhales till I was ready. When my heartbeat slowed down a little, I heaved up the lump with both hands and chunked it down on the wheel. It stuck. From across the room, Mario gently applauded. 1997 La Paz, Bolivia, Ashoka and Social Entrepreneurs. One day at pottery class, a man asked me if I knew how to translate from Spanish to English. He said Lynn, his wife, ran the local office of an international nonprofit organization called Ashoka. She needed a new assistant. Lynn interviewed me the following week, and I got the position. She liked me because we were both hippies, but smart, and we wanted to change the world, but without having to get dressed up. That job would keep me busy on and off for the following seven years and send me on assignments all around the world. Because I worked there for so long, and because the organization is really amazing, I'd like to give you some details about its purposes and activities. Ashoka identifies and supports individuals called social entrepreneurs, that is, people who have innovative strategies to solve pressing issues in areas such as health, economics, civil rights, education, and more. They appoint fellows who receive a living stipend for up to three years, which frees him or her to spread an innovative idea across the region or the world, taking it to scale and maximizing its impact. In La Paz, I started my long journey with Ashoka by translating the first-stage profiles from Spanish into English to mail them to Washington, D.C. 1998, La Paz, Bolivia, Alasitas. I was looking forward to the festival called Alasitas. The week it arrived, I took off work early and caught a bus to the city center. Crowds of people thronged a cobblestone street which led uphill, actually everything in La Paz is uphill, to a square in front of a church where I had meditated once. Now no one could possibly meditate there unless maybe he was a yogi of the century. Literally thousands of people jostled through the square, lining up to buy alasitas. Alasitas are miniature reproductions of things you want. Dollhouse scale. There's tiny money, tiny telephones, tiny cell phones, tiny U.S. passports, tiny sandals, pickup trucks, houses, university diplomas. Some were made in China. Some were handcrafted from clay and painted with details. I went crazy about everything I could think of for everyone I knew. What perfect presents, a souvenir and a wish all in one. For myself, I bought a cell phone. Remember, this was 1998, and cell phones were rare and expensive. My partner and I were having a hard time keeping track of each other, and we didn't have a normal phone either. For myself, I also bought sandals, thinking that they represented more travel. Then I stuffed my bag with dozens more gifts. After buying, the next thing to do was to get the medicine man, called Yatiri, to bless the stuff, so that the little things would manifest into reality to sprout the seeds, so to speak. The Yatiri smudged them with incense, waving the smoke over and around the items, and repeated sacred words in Aymara. That was quick enough, about a ten-minute wait. The next step was to carry the Alasitas into the church. Copying the hordes, I set my Minnesota politeness aside and wormed in. What I saw inside the church blew my mind. The priest, in full vestments, stood on top of a dining room table that had been set up halfway down the center aisle. More humans swarmed around him than could be counted. It looked like an anthill. The priest continually dipped his holy water sprinkler, 
officially called an aspergillum, into a five-liter bucket of holy water and doused the people as they passed him, holding up their alasitas. My feet hardly touched the floor as the people surged forward, carrying me along. The river of people flowed past the table, circled around it as if it were a big rock in the stream, and then doubled back towards the door. I sighed with relief. The van I took home, with sixteen people squeezed inside, felt positively spacious by comparison. The next day, my boss, Hippichik Lin, told me she'd be out of town for a few weeks and would I like to borrow her cell phone. I laughed my head off and told her all about my alasitas. Over the next few months, all of the alasitas' wishes came true for the people I'd given them to. It makes me want to go back to Bolivia. 1998 to 2000, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Brazil for good with a side trip to Africa. When my marriage ended, I asked Ashoka if I could transfer to the Rio de Janeiro office. It wasn't quite as simple as yes, but by November I was the program assistant in Brazil. I moved up a step in responsibility. I was asked to train other offices how to use a database which tracked all the Ashoka fellows. I agreed, and only then did they add, and the training will take place in Africa. Over 14 days in October 1998, I went to Johannesburg, South Africa, Accra, Ghana, and Dakar, Senegal. Fourteen days is hardly enough to inhale and exhale when we're talking about such complex and different locations, but I gained a first impression and promised myself I'd go back someday. Life in Rio. I can't say it settled into a normal pace because the normal pace for me in those days was abnormal. I stayed up all night, staggered into work, partied constantly, and acted as outrageously as I could. Dancing on the bar was not unheard of. 1999, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, inviting the spiritual. The only elements of my personal life that helped me grow spiritually in this epoch, since spirits definitely meant the cane rum in the lime and sugar drink caipirinha, which I drank all the time, were creative writing and the I Ching. A contact from the American school turned me toward a pair of American women who wrote fiction. We got together for tea and formed a writing group. We met weekly at Letras y Expressões, a bookstore coffee shop that held the banner high for local and foreign literature. Good pastries, too. As my personal life grew messier and messier, I documented it in the third person, naming my character Margaret and sculpting my troubles into the tales I called A Stranger Girl. Thankfully, it was never published, but writing daily and meeting weekly honed my skills and firmed those friendships, both of which kept me sane. Then I discovered the I Ching. Using an ancient Chinese oracle in present-day Brazil might seem a misjuxtaposition, but Brazil is all about cross-pollination. I obtained a copy with a good English translation and asked for answers every day. The I Ching way is to throw bones or yarrow roots or, in the modern case, coins. Heads and tails make up open and closed lines, which result in one of 64 sequences of advice. I was really into it. But I was also really into Brazil, everything about it. Freshly squeezed pineapple juice with mint. My one-room flat with a view of the sea if I stuck my head out dangerously far and looked sideways. Black and white mosaic sidewalks in a wavy pattern that made me dizzy, even if I wasn't drunk. I was really into my office job, since it was for the greater good of humanity, where I talked on the phone in flawed Portuguese, which slowly, slowly improved. Once my boss overheard a phone call and said Shannon, 
There are more verbs than know and get in Portuguese. It is a rich and beautiful language. Maybe it's time to increase your vocabulary. I blushed, but she was right, so I listened to her and picked up new words. This boss was always surprising me. In my heart, I called her Greta Garbo. As urbane and mysterious as a 1930s film star, she would disappear after work, and I knew nothing about her life. One afternoon, we were finished with interviews that we had held in a hotel with a garden. I was stuck on a relationship question. Was the guy I had met at a party worth calling back? I brought up reluctantly, I want to throw the I Ching to find out if I should call this guy or not. I remember feeling torn between wanting to broaden my relationship with Greta beyond this boss assistant and maintaining professional distance. As a woman 12 years my senior, she represented a font of knowledge that I wanted to tap without imposing too much on the fragile bond we were forging. Greta was napping on a garden bench. She opened her eyes a crack and recrossed her ankles. She commanded, go for it, throw the coins. I scrabbled for three ten-centavo pieces from the bottom of my cheap cotton purse and tossed them, six times, onto a notebook propped on another chair. The six little lines brought up hexagram 23. Greta glanced at the sketch and said, Po. Opening the I Ching book, there it was, Po, or stripping away. I looked up at Greta in surprise. You know these by heart? Jaded, Greta lit a cigarette. I have been throwing the I Ching for years, she replied. It is part of the postmodern condition that humans with a lack of faith in God, in the gods, and in humanity itself, need to find some answers some bloody damn way. She sighed as she slouched back into her place in the shade. I read rapidly through the entry, picking up the relevant lines. Cut into the problem and strip away the unessential without thought of immediate gain. The hexagram figure shows the end of a cycle and the preparation for the new. The ideogram portrays a knife and the sign for carving. It suggests taking decisive action to cut something away. I then read it out loud to Greta, who checked what carving meant in English, and then I paused. A lizard flicked by on the garden's tile floor, and I jerked my foot away. So, I queried, afraid of the interpretation, does it mean call or not call? So reductionist, so American, but I just wanted an answer. Call, Greta mandated, and her aristocratic eyebrows leapt with a sudden enthusiasm that shocked me, but set me up on my feet and halfway to the payphone booth in the hotel foyer. In this case, the I Ching was right. The dude was excited to hear from me. The I Ching kept me connected to something higher than my own whims and caprices. Sometimes I felt it was my guardian angel speaking to me. November 1999, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Inspiration. Day by day, I translated profiles, interviewed candidates, processed forms. A shift took place within when I started to care quite deeply about which candidates became fellows. I saw that when a candidate made it to fellow, he or she truly could make a national or regional impact. And if I could write a more convincing profile, maybe my favorite candidates would make it through. Who were my favorites? I loved the innovators, the mad people. I would never want to marry an Ashoka fellow, talk about obsessives. But funding them was a good idea for the health of the world. A woman in Sao Paulo used flower remedies, like the Bach Rescue Remedy, on homeless and shack-dwelling families, producing fabulous psychological results at almost no cost. A microcredit founder way up the northeast coast decided who to lend money to based on their ethics. I loved that. I started writing articles for Ashoka's online magazine, Changemakers, 
which is still up and running. In the office, I wrote their profiles with passion, sitting at the computer until midnight. I wove their narratives like many novels. The Washington, D.C. office staff noticed and complimented me. After all, they had to read submissions from dozens of countries, so the more interesting the storytelling, the easier their jobs. A shift took place inside me, too. I wasn't just doing a job. When I interviewed the candidates, I often listened to their deepest secrets, how much they wanted to change the world, how scared they felt, how their single-minded focus on their programs was hurting their marriages. I heard how they had been called. I, too, wanted a calling. December 1999, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Why leave? To come back. For no good reason, I had itchy feet and a nagging voice saying, you're poor, you're broke, there's no money in nonprofits. It seems superficial, but I got fed up with making no money. Even though I was coming closer to finding my own vocation, materialism reared its ugly head and convinced me to leave Brazil and go to California to earn dollars. Thus, I held a series of goodbye Rio parties for the month before I left. The very last party lasted until about two in the morning, and I hardly remember getting dropped off at home. I collapsed on my bed amidst my packed luggage. The taxi was scheduled for noon, so I had plenty of time to sleep off the caipirinhas, except Brazil needed to talk to me. At 5.30, I was jerked awake, fully sober. I sat up in bed and shook my head. What had woken me, a noise? It was quiet outside and still dark. I smelled the ocean, and suddenly I felt a strong urge to walk. Still wearing my short black party dress and my sparkly earrings, I slipped on sandals and headed for the beach a few blocks away. In Rio, there's a well-known rocky peninsula called Arpoador. From the end of it, you can see both Copacabana and Ipanema. Some people call it a magical place. Alert, but almost sleepwalking, I made for Arpoador and climbed up on the rock. Just a few fishermen and a handful of joggers shared the beach with me. The sky changed from charcoal to lavender. More birds sang. I stood and stood and stood. I didn't feel tired. I didn't even feel hungover. The symphony of sky mesmerized me. Then I realized why I had come. The sun rose. The sun rose up and became a massive red gong that sounded a majestic herald, as bright red as a huge tomato, unblocked by clouds. Wow, I cried out loud. A fisherman looked at me and nodded solemnly. This was something special. The red sun seemed to take up a third of the sky as it hovered just above the horizon. I heard the words, you're coming back. Have you ever gone through a completely magical event and then felt the spell break? I felt both elated and physically beat. The sand that had formed a springy cushion for my walk here now tripped me up as I dragged myself back to bed. I slept until the taxi came. Happiness. Such a relief to be invited back, and in such a spectacularly Brazilian way. As we drove away under the palm trees, the taxi driver asked, You leaving? I replied, smiling, just for a while.